Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 441 for May 3rd, 2015. This week, Adobe's latest version of Acrobat goes a long way toward fulfilling absurd demands from users. Samsung has finally started pushing updates to the latest version of Android, Lollipop, to phones, but not yet to tablets. Microsoft is now at build 10,074 of Windows 10, and Project Spartan has a real name. In short circuits, this week is the 34th anniversary of the first commercial mouse. If you have an Apple Watch, you can have a portable dictionary, and we'll look at another threat to traditional radio. In spare parts, only on the website, tiny storage devices are even larger, and you can hang a weatherproof Wi-Fi access point outside to cover the neighborhood. Imagine leaning over a water fountain, or a bubbler, if that's what you call it, or a drinking fountain, if that's what you call it, expecting a gentle flow of water and finding it's actually attached to a fire hose. Those of us who review Adobe applications are sometimes in that exact situation. Last week's program was almost entirely about the new version of Lightroom, and there was certainly a lot to talk about, but Adobe has also updated other creative cloud applications. Although a new version of Acrobat has been out for a couple of weeks, I haven't had time to say anything about it until now. So this week I'd like to remedy that, but we won't use the whole program. We'll take a look at some other topics, too. It's called Acrobat DC. The DC stands for Document Cloud, not Direct Current, or DC Comics. And a surprising number of pundits have said that this is what Acrobat should have been all along. Well, anybody who says that knows nothing about how software works, and even less about how software development works. So I'm not going to say that. What I will say is that Acrobat DC completely changes the way the program works, and that many of the features are very welcome. This version of Acrobat is the first one in which users can edit a PDF document without going stark raving mad. Whether you should edit a PDF document is still open to question. In general, I still recommend not editing PDFs. Sometimes, though, you must, and Acrobat DC is, therefore, something to be excited about. What's new in Acrobat DC? Well, would saying everything be too extreme? Even the name changed in an unexpected way. Acrobat 11, or XI, was released in late 2012, so you might expect this version to be version 12, or XII. Instead, it's DC. In Roman numerals, that would be 600. I'm pretty sure that's not what Adobe had in mind. The interface is new, and it seems to be a lot easier to navigate. Some functions always seem to be hiding in the previous interface, but now they're out in the open. Optical character recognition has improved, 
and editing text is possible, if still not recommended, at least by me. There are some new mobile functionalities, and if you have a touch-enabled device, yep, Acrobat supports it. This is one amazing update. If you skipped the upgrade from version 10 to version 11, that was okay, you really didn't miss a lot. But you won't want to miss this upgrade. Acrobat Pro DC is available for Windows and Apple's OS X, and mobile versions run on Android and iOS devices. There's a new reader application for those who need only to view PDFs, not edit them. The cloud is an integral part of this new offering, and it's about more than just the ability to store documents online where they'll be handy. You've heard of Adobe's Creative Cloud. There's also Creative Cloud for photographers, and there's Marketing Cloud. The Document Cloud includes standard and pro versions of Acrobat Reader and the mobile apps. Pricing is a bit on the complex side with both subscription and perpetual versions. But if you're a Creative Cloud subscriber, relax. Document Cloud is automatically included. You'll see the most visible change before you get to the Blockbuster features. The interface has changed, and changed radically. Functions that were once securely tucked away and hard to find are now displayed prominently in a toolbox. Adobe has also made it possible for users to modify the interface so that the program looks exactly the way you want it to, and the tools you use most frequently will be present on the toolbar. The ability to extract text from scanned images isn't new, but this version is noticeably better. And you can edit the text in a document that's been created from a scan without having type that looks like it doesn't belong there. When OCR, Optical Character Recognition, is used on a scanned document, the text will have a certain distressed quality as a result. If you've run OCR on a scanned image from an old newspaper that was set using hot lead, for example, the typeface used may no longer exist. Touching up text in a document like that was always obvious in the past because the pristine electronic letters didn't match the scanned image. Now, Adobe makes up the typefaces on the spot so that what it adds will match the surrounding type. So I wonder just how long it'll be until somebody scans a newspaper from the 1860s and proves conclusively that Abraham Lincoln talked about the Internet at a cabinet meeting. For the examples you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website, I didn't go all the way back to the 1860s, but I did find a likely candidate for a bit of fun. I wanted to add a line of text to a scanned image. I found that adding an extra line in the column I wanted to edit wouldn't look very good. So instead, I took a line from the top of the second column and placed it at the bottom of the first column. Then I added my extra sentence in column two. Check it out on the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll note that the added text very closely resembles the existing newspaper text. So now you can edit a PDF document. But I still think that you should avoid that whenever you can. I've talked with editors who want to be able to edit PDF documents, but even now that Acrobat DC makes the process relatively workable, I still can't recommend it. And that's because editing a PDF doesn't change the original document. Nobody creates documents from scratch in Acrobat. 
PDFs begin as Word documents or Excel documents or InDesign documents. The PDF version is intended for use by a company that will print the document commercially or by somebody who will read the document. Changing the PDF instead of the original source document creates a disconnect between the original document and the PDF. Except for last-second changes to correct typos and other minor errors, which should then be reported back to the creator of the document so that the source may be updated, I really can't vote for changing PDFs. But in the real world, I know that sometimes this simply must be done. So despite my cautions about not editing PDF documents, except when there's no other option, the ability to add or edit text in this version is very welcome. Every bit of text that can be edited appears inside a bounding box, what InDesign users will recognize as a frame. In previous versions of Acrobat, these frames included usually just a line or two of text, if that, sometimes less than a line. Text didn't flow from one box to another. That made editing very cumbersome. In some cases, the text frames are still uncomfortably small, but more often than not, they contain enough text to make edits that involve adding or deleting more than a word or two possible. That alone is a big wow after all these years. For more information and answers about the new features, take a look at the Adobe Document Cloud FAQ. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And let's take a look at pricing. Adobe's pricing and licensing vary from one application to another. Photoshop, for example, is a creative cloud application. Lightroom is available with a perpetual license or as part of the creative cloud. Acrobat DC is more like Lightroom in that regard. So your options are these. You can get Acrobat DC Pro as a subscription, $180 a year or $25 a month. You can get Acrobat DC Standard as a subscription for $156 a year or $23 a month. Acrobat DC Pro as a perpetual license is $450 and $200 if you're upgrading from a previous version. Acrobat DC Standard Perpetual is $300 or $140 to upgrade from a previous version. The Acrobat Reader and the web-based Fill and Sign are free regardless. And full Creative Cloud subscribers get Document Cloud as part of their monthly fee already. Reader, Standard, and Pro versions all provide the basics, and they all have some new features. The reader version cannot send and track documents online, but you probably wouldn't expect that feature in the free application. If you want to edit a PDF, you won't be able to do that with reader, nor should you expect to. If the PDF has reader rights enabled, you will be able to perform some actions, though. The standard version includes the most useful functions, but considering the pro version is only an extra $24 a year, that seems to be the more reasonable choice. Signing and collecting features are nearly identical between standard and pro versions, except that the pro version makes some of the enhanced features available. The reader version, of course, is the most limited of the three versions in that regard. The bottom line for Adobe Acrobat 5 Cats, Acrobat advances from the 20th century to the 22nd century. All right, maybe that's a little bit of an overstatement. 
But Acrobat has now enabled functions that people like me thought would never be possible given the underlying structure of PostScript. I have no idea who sold his or her soul and to which devil they sold it to to make all this possible. But I do know this. It is one impressive upgrade. You'll find additional details on the Adobe Document Cloud website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And remember, if you subscribe to the full version of Creative Cloud, you already have everything I've just described. How about a lollipop? T-Mobile has finally started rolling out the Android operating system's version 5 to some of its Samsung phones and tablets. The carrier has the distinction of being the last carrier in the U.S. to push out the update. Many owners of Samsung Galaxy Note 4 phones have reported problems, including extremely low battery life with version 5.0, and T-Mobile delivered version 5.0.1 this week. Presumably, this version does resolve some of the 5.0 problems. I haven't yet seen version 5 for a Samsung tablet. My tablet is still running 4.4.2, which is, as far as I'm concerned, pretty badly out of date. With 5.0.1 on my phone, so far I haven't seen any of the more serious problems that have been reported. Battery life is lower than before, but still acceptable in that a charged phone will run for at least a full workday on a single charge. Applications that worked previously still work. Wi-Fi connections are fine. The overall look and feel, I think, is a bit better. Cleaner, perhaps, would be a more appropriate term. Wi-Fi network speed remains fast when running on a 5 GHz node. The 2.4 GHz speed hasn't changed, nor did I expect it to. Reminder cards when I start the phone are arranged in a more usable way in version 5, and some of the controls have moved a bit. The option to clear notifications, for example, is now at the bottom of the screen instead of at the top. Some people have reported that built-in hardware, such as the camera, didn't work properly under Lollipop, but I found no problems there. I made a test photo with the camera application shortly after installing the upgrade. You'll see it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Lollipop has finally been released for the Samsung Galaxy Tab S, the tablet, but only in Korea. There's no word yet on when it'll be released in the United States. It could be weeks... It could be months before Samsung releases version 5 of the operating system in the U.S. and Europe for tablets. Project Spartan finally has a real name. The browser that will replace Internet Explorer will be called Edge, and its new logo looks pretty much like the old logo. The new logo drops the halo. Well, most people felt that Internet Explorer never deserved a halo anyway. Otherwise, it'll generally look a lot the same. 
Microsoft pushed out build 10074 in the fast ring this week, but the browser is still called Project Spartan. At the build conference, Microsoft showed a short video, think movie trailer, about the new browser. You'll find it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It's a little less than a minute and a half long, so take the time and take a look at it. There were changes announced at the Microsoft Build Conference in conjunction with the release of the latest build in the Fast Ring. Edge has some new features that put it on par with other browsers such as Chrome and Firefox. In some ways, it goes beyond what other browsers have done. But Microsoft probably wants to maintain a familiar-looking logo to avoid confusing people. Microsoft's Terry Meyerson, who's in charge of the Windows 10 project, says that the company expects Windows 10 to be installed on one billion devices within three years. That sounds overly optimistic, perhaps. But Windows 10 is intended to run on servers, desktop systems, notebook computers, tablets, and phones. Meyerson also explained that Microsoft has developed tools that will allow developers who build apps for Android and iOS devices to port them to Windows 10 without the need to completely rewrite the apps. As a proof of concept, King Digital has used the tools to port the popular Candy Crush game to Windows 10. Microsoft has also been working on universal apps that will work on screens of any size, small phones to multi-screen desktop systems. These apps will be able to modify what they display based on the type of screen they're running on. According to Myers, Disney, Evernote, Netflix, and others are already creating universal apps. In short circuits, behold the mouse. During this week in 1981, the first commercially sold mouse became available for purchase. Prior to 1981, a mouse was a small rodent that you might find in your house and that might be caught by your cat. But the computer mouse had been invented more than 15 years earlier. Most of us just thought of the rodent before 1981, though. Or the mouse might have been named Mickey, and might have starred in Disney cartoons. In 1981, Douglas Engelbart paired the mouse with a small Xerox 8010 information system at the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center. The computer was small in that it fit under a desk. It cost $20,000 Remember back then a first-class stamp cost 22 cents, Gasoline sold for a little more than a dollar a gallon, and a mid-range 1981 car could be purchased for a few hundred dollars less than $6,000. The mouse had been born at Park, the Palo Alto Research Center, in 1964, and today it's just a part of our desktop landscape. How many people actually remember a time when they used a computer without a mouse? 
Engelbart graduated from high school in Portland in 1942, just in time for World War II, and midway through college, he was drafted into the Navy. He served two years as a radar technician in the Philippines, where he read Vannevar Bush's article, As We May Think. That article influenced many of the people who worked on early computers. Engelbart died in 2013. He was 88. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, computer manufacturing is a $10 billion per year business for 360 firms in the U.S. Another 625 companies make peripheral equipment that's valued at more than $11 billion annually. Together, they employ some 67,000 workers. During a conversation, you're about to use the word comprise, and you can't remember exactly how it works. Do objects comprise the whole, or does the whole comprise some objects? Well, not wanting to sound foolish, you look at your watch. Fortunately, it's an Apple Watch with a built-in dictionary.com application. The day is saved when you confidently state, the Soviet Union comprised several socialist republics. But then, unfortunately, you realize that you used the example on Dictionary.com and failed to make the point you intended. And the point was that your company comprises several regional offices. All right, seriously, Dictionary.com really does have an app for Apple's Watch, as well as for most other mobile devices. The app comprises access to millions of English definitions, synonyms, pronunciations, and example sentences. And if you have an Apple Watch, you can view them right on your wrist. Dictionary.com CEO Michelle Turner says the Apple Watch made it possible to develop new ways to bring words to life for people. Users can speak a word to their watch, Dick Tracy style, or tap the word in to obtain definitions or a synonym. Speaking the word activates Siri and provides access to definitions for more than 2 million words. The application also provides access to the Word of the Day feature. Users can look up synonyms for all words in Dictionary.com, and if there's too much information to read comfortably on a watch, the user can hand the information off to an iPhone. For more information on Dictionary.com for Apple Watch, or apps for the other platforms, take a look at the Dictionary.com website. Yep, there's a link on the TechFighter Worldwide website. Here comes another challenge for standard radio. Internet radio is popular, but it is missing some important features that local terrestrial stations can provide. Weather, for example. Well, now a Chicago company plans to remove that advantage in 30 cities. 
Rivet Radio will provide localized weather information for listeners in 30 cities, none of them in the United States. You'll find a list of those cities on the TechBiter Worldwide website. In partnership with Custom Weather, geotagged content will allow global users to receive accurate local forecasts in their city every morning. We focused on supercharging our international experience for Rivet Radio audiences, according to Rivet CEO John McLeod. With enabled geolocation and Rivet Radio's audio meta tagging and delivery solutions, we're able to channel audio to our local audiences. Rivet is working with Custom Weather, San Francisco company that offers weather information for businesses and consumer applications via the Internet. Custom Weather generates granular weather forecasts for more than 200 countries, and CEO Jeff Flint says the partnership with Rivet will provide millions of end-users with accurate weather forecasts. Rivet's global focus complements our own commitment to worldwide coverage, Flint said. He says the company can provide localized weather information for 80,000 worldwide locations in more than 75 languages. Spare Parts, however, is available in only a single language and only on the website. This week's stories, tiny storage devices become even larger, and you can hang a weatherproof Wi-Fi access point outside to cover the neighborhood. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.